9 a.m. on the West Coast, noon on the East Coast, and in Kabul, it is 8.30 p.m., only a few hours after we got reports that there were two explosions followed by gunfire at the Kabul airport in which there were multiple casualties, among them Americans. Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. Today, we are joined by roving reporter Holly McKay, uh, a friend, a colleague, investigative journalist, war crimes investigator. She was a prolific, prolific writer uh, for Fox News Digital for many, many years. And now she's globetrotting uh, and, and, and taking on very brave freelance assignments, which brought her to Afghanistan. And now she is in Uzbekistan, where she joins us live. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, obviously, I think people are very interested in in what you were doing uh, on the ground in Afghanistan during this crisis, how you got there, uh, and how this all came about. Absolutely. So I've been covering Afghanistan for several years and uh, have been here several times. And I guess now my photographer, Jake Simkin, who uh, is in Australia, we decided that this would be the ideal time to come back, really, because both of us had spent time here. We wanted to document that final that final phase of the U.S. Uh, withdrawal, and we had planned to be here for about three months, uh, and came at the beginning of August. And really, you could, if someone had told me that things were going to escalate as fast as they. Did, I, I would never have believed them. So we got to Kabul and we're working there and it was the same city that I'd come to know and love. Obviously people were a little bit more fearful this time given that the US was leaving and what was going to happen. Uh, but we continued to work, things seemed normal. We decided to go to Mazar Sharif um, and that was uh, the Thursday before last. And we're doing some work there on the front line with some of the SF commandos, Afghan SF commandos, and just documenting sort of what was happening around the north. As at that point, uh, everything seemed to be falling apart. And now, mind you, Mazar Sharif is an extremely anti-Taliban stronghold. So mm -hmm. we really didn't think that it was going to be problematic. And every intel source that I spoke to and people on the ground, it just seemed that life was, was fairly normal. And then, so that was on the Thursday that we arrived. The next day things seemed a slightly little bit different. The streets were a little bit quieter. People were starting to seem a little bit more anxious, but yet things were still going. I was still in the streets, still doing interviews, still moving around. Uh, Saturday came and it was suddenly a ghost town and you sort of only really saw people that were lining up at the banks to get all their money out. Um, wow. Everybody seemed to be fleeing. I was calling different interpreters that I knew and everybody I knew had fled to Kabul at that point. Um, and sort of by the mid midday, we started to see people coming in from the edges of the city and in, right into the city because they were being taken over by the Taliban. And we got in a cab and were driving along this sort of barren road out to talk to some of the people that were fleeing inside. And the cab driver just sort of turned around and he looked at us and he said, I'm scared, I don't want to go any further. And the interpreter with this strange big smile said to me, oh, they broke through the first lines, the, we're, we're surrounded and they're coming. And even at that point, I don't think we really, it just, did, it just seemed like such an anti-Taliban stronghold. It was hard for me to wrap my head around the city falling that quickly. And yet a few hours later, by that evening, we'd gone out. Um, we both felt, my photographer and I both felt something was very wrong. And so we hurried back to our hotel. And as we're hurrying back, you saw the Taliban come in on motorcycles. And that's when we realized, oh, okay, 
you know, now we're entering a bit of a different phase. So then we had to to kind of mitigate over the next few days what we were going to do in terms of getting out. Kabul had fallen the, the following day. So that made that the airport situation um, was pretty much next to impossible to get to. So, yeah, in the end, we, we decided the only way out was really to speak to the Taliban. And that was going to be the only safe recourse, I think, for us to get out. I was fairly confident that they weren't going to hurt a foreigner in any way, but it still was a risk with reward. And in the end, uh, we had them work with the Uzbek uh, consulate a little bit and take us north to the border to Uzbekistan because at that point we could not get to Kabul as much as we wanted to. So um, that was sort of our adventure. And, and, you know, the Taliban really tried to spin this PR thing that that they were um, they were different to the Taliban that existed 20 years ago, and that a lot of what was being reported in the media was uh, propaganda. Um, but you know, when we started to probe a little bit more about what this new quote unquote Taliban looks like, it was very clear that they were advocating a very stringent version of Sharia law, and um, and things, especially for women, were not going to be as rosy as it seems. Um, from a lot of their top leadership so right. it's still a little bit unclear exactly what it's very contradictory i guess in in we see the leadership saying one thing but the actual fighters on the ground are behaving in a very different way so it's going to be very interesting come next tuesday when the u.s finally leaves exactly what this new taliban looks like you know, um, so many questions, and I, that's why I'm, I'm not interrupting you because everything you're saying obviously is is extremely um, interesting and 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 really eye opening as to what you experience and what people are experiencing there. I guess two of the things where my ears perked up is that was there a directive for people to head to Kabul because it ended up being the more dangerous path uh, for many, sure. whether they were ending up at the airport or in the perimeters, uh, the roads leading uh, to the airport. That's my first question. And second, how many people are like you in the sense that you know you you are an American, um, American uh, citizenship and coming over to uh, Afghanistan, wanting to get out. And then you, you know, pursue a conversation um, with the Taliban to get, a, you know, special permission. Uh, are there many people or many, many foreigners like yourself that were allowed this special permission? And how easy is it to get into Uzbekistan right now? So first question is, I think people were fleeing to Kabul because people still thought it was safe. And I know in Mazar, when I was interviewing shopkeepers the day before it fell, they were all sort of saying, well, we want to go somewhere safe like Europe or Kabul was sort of the answer they gave me. So people really thought there was just no way that Kabul was going to fall. And even if the rest of the country fell, people just did not think that Kabul was going to fall anytime soon. So that to them was a safe haven. So I don't I don't think there was any directive. I just think people were going to wherever they could go to that they thought was going to be safe and away from some of the fighting and the Taliban. I think people thought that it was going to going to hold um, and that people just really didn't have any idea that the president was going to flee uh, and hand it over to the Taliban, essentially. So I don't I don't think there was a specific directive other than that was the survival mechanism. Um, and second to that. There are some journalists and I think that um, many of the journalists, you know, such as myself and and there's been some really amazing reporting from CNN, Clarissa Ward and and there's some other um, and Al Jazeera. I'm blanking on her name. Charlotte, I think she's in there doing reporting. So there's a lot of foreign women in there that are reporting uh, and, and having relations with the Taliban at the same time. So I think that's an important part of how what, what it's going to look like in this foreign landscape is that we need to be able to understand what 
what the Taliban is thinking, what they're doing and how they're going to govern. So, for example, today uh, we spoke to another Taliban leader. He's the cultural minister. And I asked him, you know, as a foreigner, can foreign journalists still work in in uh, Afghanistan after next Tuesday? You know, what is going to be the policy? Um, and he seemed to be fairly certain that foreigners were still allowed to, to function and work there. Um, they still were still trying to set up travel mechanisms, so to speak. But their whole objective, at least what they're saying on the surface, is that they're trying to be somewhat open and they don't want to be the prior country that they were 20 years ago. Um, so... But again, it's just, it's so hard that, to know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what they say is so different to what they act. Exactly. And I guess that, that's my follow-up is to say, you know, when they're saying one thing, obviously they're very savvy uh, in using these these platforms and being quoted. I'm seeing, you know, mainstream media outlets, you know, giving details about this morning's uh, explosions and then saying as per a Taliban spokesperson, meaning our our solid and, and trusted sources on the ground now are the Taliban spokespeople. It makes no sense. When they're telling Afghan women to stop going to university in, in a province like Herat, or if they're telling women in the banking industry and other industries stop going to work. Do you feel safe as a woman journalist working there past Tuesday's deadline? I know you're, you're headed back to Afghanistan in the next 24 hours, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a piece by piece minute. I think uh, to some degree, I think uh, operating in Kabul is potentially a little bit safer. I certainly in Mazar, even though there wasn't violence and the volatility that we're seeing in Kabul, I, I wasn't comfortable going around in the street, even covered in a burqa. I would, I was not comfortable in that situation because there really were no other foreigners in the city at the time, and certainly no reporters going around functioning. However, I do think uh, if you obtain certain permissions for them, they do have exceptions for foreigners. It seems so far, um, and in Kabul, we're seeing that a little bit where there are foreign journalists, but it really is the Afghans that are the ones that are suffering. The Afghan journalists, uh, the people trying to flee, they're the ones that. Uh, basically being targeted. I think foreigners at this point, at least while the US still has a footprint there, um, are sort of being left alone just by an optics point of view, because the Taliban don't want to be seen as, uh, you know, as targeting the outsider, so so to speak. So it, it's arbitrary. And again, I, I think there's a big dichotomy between what the leadership is saying and what the rogue elements on the ground are doing. And I just think there are so many factions and, and right now not really a centralized figure that is um, able to control what is happening. So I think that's just a big disconnect as well. And I don't think mm -hmm. that, you know, you certainly can't trust every fighter on the ground um, the way that the leadership seems to think that they have a control. And so I think that's going to be a big issue for them. Um, but again, they need foreign funding and support to survive. So it's going to be interesting to me to see what do kind they of concessions they're Holly, willing to make. Do they? Do, how about Qatar? Qatar, the piggy bank, the terrorist piggy bank is available. They can just cut ties with the U.S., implement Sharia law and, um, you know, become become the the. the the U.S.'s biggest uh, enemy, you know, and and dedicate themselves to fighting U.S. and U.S. assets. Right. I think what they're craving is a certain type of of power or stature that they had they never got, which is the international recognition. I, I think, from what I'm understanding, is their ultimate goal would be to be recognized in the U.N. as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, um, and they want that international recognition. I don't think that their goal is just to be uh, recognized by Qatar and, and, and Russia and China. I think their 
poising themselves to very carefully uh, position themselves to somehow have that global recognition that they were never able to really receive 20 years ago. And I think we're going to see a little bit of careful maneuvering, at least in the beginning, to kind of get them to that position. And then once they're there, it's sort of, we'll see what happens from there. But I think I think they're being a little bit more strategic about things at the moment than than they were 20 years ago. And with regard to the people that you're seeing and interviewing um, on the outskirts of Afghanistan, is Kabul the only exit or are people making uh, other attempts? Basically, the Taliban controls every single entry and exit point of the country, which is very, which is very challenging uh, for anyone. So people are trying to get out through Tajikistan or Uzbekistan. The border is closed, um, so it is very difficult. On the night that Mazar fell, a lot of the soldiers fled there. And so as you're going along that road, you just see all the, you know, the armored trucks that the U.S. gave Afghanistan. You see the uniforms, you mm -hmm. see the remnants of, of everything that was kind of dumped. And it's it's quite chilling. Um, and so you but the, the border is closed to them. I think there was even a situation uh, a few days ago where a plane, one of the U.S. planes flown by an Afghan had crashed in Uzbekistan because people were so desperate to to leave. So they're finding different ways. People are drowning, uh, trying to cross that river into Tajikistan as well. So it's really heartbreaking. And then, of course, the other points of entry, uh, being Iran, being China, being Pakistan, um, are all very difficult for Afghans to get through. So it's a, it's a difficult situation. There really isn't anywhere to go. And right now, Kabul is the only airspace that's operating. Every other airport has been shut down. And the U.S. Mm -hmm. is controlling the airport for now. But what happens after that remains to be seen, I think. So it is It is a real cluster. And people are looking for smuggling routes. I know right. there are a lot of people sort of setting up these underground railroads, so to speak, mm -hmm. to try to get people through Pakistan and other areas. But then the neighboring countries like Uzbekistan obviously have their own security to worry about and have their own security threats. And so they're, uh, they're not willing to mm -hmm. kind of take any risks so it's a really really precarious situation where people feel very trapped that they can't get out and and it's a very real it's a very real feeling because there really isn't a safe uh, passage or a sort of a friendly country that they can go to uh, necessarily right um, I know a lot of your investigative reporting on the ground there has been about the actual evacuations and getting uh, the US and other foreigners uh, out um, you know, you uh, you did a New York Post piece about the, the evacuation process and um, specifically about the criticism that a lot of these uh, private charters are empty. Um, can you address that? You mean, why, why are these planes empty? Um, you know, how would you even assess the, the evacuation process in total? And does it look like we're going to get this job done by Tuesday? It's an absolute mess. I just, I can't... I can't begin to to tell you just how frustrating it's been and, and this, the desperation every half an hour of receiving messages from people who just, I'm at the gate, I'm at the gate. You know, they've spent sometimes two days trying to just physically get to the gate only to be turned around and told to go home when they get there. So it's problematic from so many different reasons, you know, things like if people have their spelling incorrect or they sort of their ethnic spelling on their passport might be different to what they put on a form and then they're being turned away um, because the, the paperwork isn't to a T. Um, and then you uh, other people are getting there and, and 
for example, people are being told that they need to be at the gate by, by 10 a.m. So it may take them 12 hours to get there. And by the time they get there, they've missed that window. Or everybody's being told to go to one gate um, as opposed to, you know, there are many gates at that airport that they could be told to go to. And so it's creating a bottleneck in one place that's creating a security problem. They're just little, or not little, I should say, they're large things that can that just eventuated into being a complete mess. And, and for example, one of my photographers, one of his uh, his good friend's wife has been trying to get out since Sunday, since the, since the day Kaaba fell more than a week ago. And she's been trying every single day. She's absolutely terrified uh, to get there and she still has had no luck. And she has all her paperwork ready to go and physically mm. just cannot get there. And she's a young woman on her own and she's just petrified. And I just think, it's, think, it's situations like that when escorts need to be arranged for people. People need to be told, and this is something the Brits were actually doing really well from the beginning, was arranging people to be in a safe house at a certain location in a certain time, and we're having a convoy come and physically escort them because that's really where the bottleneck's coming from. So it's just, and then the other part of the problem is too, you have a lot of Afghans that are just so in fear of their lives that they're going to the airport without any documentation and they right. don't have the, the what's required but and it's also creating a huge uh, a huge mess around the airport as well so there's there are just so many factors um and i think it's been really disappointing that the u.s hasn't really been able to to leave the wire i think that's one thing that our our men and women really want to be able to do is to be able to get these Afghans to safety and get American citizens to safety right. and they're just not allowed to do it whereas the French and the Brits and the South Africans have all been allowed to kind of physically go out and do it and really that was what was required from the beginning there are still thousands of American citizens I believe that are still in the country and not just in Kabul the problem is people are all over the country and that's right. the other thing that is isn't really being addressed. How are people getting out of Kandahar? How are they getting yeah. out of Herat? Yeah. Uh, like we, we, that's just not being addressed. It's like you, you either have to get your way to Kabul, which requires Taliban exactly. permissions to to drive there. Right. Um, otherwise, you are going to be completely stuck, and that's a it's right. a big problem. So, yeah. I don't see mathematically how we're definitely. I mean, we may be able to get the American citizens out, at least the ones that are in Kabul, by Tuesday. But all the thousands of Afghans that have the SIVs and have the proper paperwork who supported Americans throughout this occupation, and now they're the ones who I really, I don't see yes. how they're going to be able to get out. So exactly. it's, been, it's been an absolute mess. And, and I know a lot of people as well that have said, that have raised money to get evacuation planes, that have gotten things donated from different countries, but they're not able to land. So they don't have the required paper paperwork that the US is controlling the airport. And so you do have a lot of these resources that have just gone to waste because um, they've been chartered, people have paid for them, and they just, they physically cannot land at yeah, the airport. That, you know, that's a, that's an interesting point in all of this is that, yes, the U.S. does control the airport, but yet, you know, the intel that we got overnight, for example, that there would be, uh, you know, some sort of attack at the airport came from the U.K. Uh, a lot of our intel has come from our European allies uh, with regards to what is moving on the ground and transpiring on the ground. Um, why, why all this confusion and chaos? We've been there for 20 years. I mean, um, you said it perfectly in your, you know, in the initial question in that, you know, you were there from the beginning of August and in two weeks, this unraveled so quickly. Uh, you know, wh where are the loose threads here that led to such a Mickey Mouse, you know, e evacuation? 
I think it was an absolute disaster. And I think the U.S. obviously completely underestimated uh, the abilities of the Taliban and really overestimated the capabilities of the Afghan security forces. I think closing Bagram back in May was just a huge mistake. Um, I mean, the amount of difference we could have made in keeping that open uh, mm -hmm. would have been huge. Instead, what happened was the uh, the Taliban took over Bagram and released 7,000 of the most hardened Taliban mm -hmm. fighters who'd been, who'd been at the maximum security wing there. So that just bolstered, of course, the Taliban's ability to to hold and, and capture further areas. So um, it, it's just shocking to begin with. I think I think in my opinion is that the corruption within the Afghan government, which really filtered through to the military, was a huge factor in why these cities fell so quickly. What you were looking at was basically the young soldiers being sold out by, by leadership, by commanders who were cutting deals with the Taliban in advance, getting money, agreeing to hand over the city, fleeing the country to their safe uh, palaces in neighboring nations and leaving their soldiers okay. basically to slaughter. So when soldiers were finding out, well, their leaders had already left and, and already surrendered the city. I mean, you can imagine why they didn't want to keep fighting, why they were choosing to drop their weapons and run uh, because the, the country they were fighting for no longer existed. That country had sold them out and, and didn't care about their own right. lives. And we're right. seeing that more and more. And the mm -hmm. Taliban were very strategic about playing into that. So they were they were cut they were winning the war by sitting in a room having tea, cutting a deal. They weren't winning the war necessarily out there on the battlefield in a fight. And, and even in Mazar, the way they took that city, it was without a shot. They just came in. There was zero resistance. And what baffled me was that there was zero air support. There was nothing. And so the air support was the one thing that the US had given the Afghan forces that the Taliban did not have. And yet it was not used. It was not used in any capacity to support them in their fight. And I think the Taliban really played into that in the sense that as soon as the US announced that withdrawal date, they were able to kind of recede a little bit, lay a bit a bit low. And I think the US had a false sense of security of how strong the Afghan forces were and thought that they were much mm -hmm. stronger than they were. I also think we actually had no idea how many people there were in the ANA. I mean, I was hearing mm -hmm. numbers where there was 300,000 security forces. I wouldn't be surprised if a good, uh, quarter of those at least were gorgeous that never existed or had died or just weren't there. So I don't think that the strength in numbers were there. And the Taliban were really able to exploit that by getting insiders, getting defectors, paying for inside attacks. So I just think the US really didn't know what was on its hands. And I don't think the Afghan, the NDS were very good at collecting their intelligence. And even in my even in my case, I I was literally on the phone to an NDS person about an hour before Mazar fell. And they were telling me, no, 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 it's not going to fall for about two weeks, if that, ah. you know, you'll be fine. You, I had my flight at a flight back to Kabul was, wasn't going to be for 48 hours. And yet here they are saying, oh, no, 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 it's, it's you're fine. Nazar's not going to fall. It's under control. And, you know, 40 minutes later, it's done. So I just think we just really overestimated the capabilities of what the Afghans had. And, and they just, yeah, they weren't able to what? give accurate information. I know you have some high-level sources on the ground there, and I, I, I want what's going through their minds. I mean, think about the the people who are from the the military, from the government. Obviously, the president was able to escape, but I'm sure the whole you know top echelon of society there was not able to escape. Do they have X's on their backs? Are they fearful for their lives right now? I think a lot of them are definitely fearful for the fearful. I think a lot have left. I mean, a lot of the contacts that 
that I had, I have not heard from. I have tried to send them messages and, and they aren't even going through. So I can only make the assumption that they've gone to another country um, or very much in hiding. I think any of the sort of that top echelon that are still safely in Kabul have obviously cut a deal with the Taliban that will enable their safety. Otherwise, I would assume that anyone who hadn't, hadn't already pre-structured a deal would have long left by now because um, certainly X is on their backs and, and, and it's just, I think there's been a lot of inventory that's been done over the past week or so where Taliban are going door to door collecting information about who is at that house, um, how, you know, how many weapons are at that house, what roles people have had. And, uh, and I think they're collecting that inventory and it's, it's, it remains to be seen what's going to happen next week. I've also think what's been disappointing too is really the president left and, and really didn't tell anybody. And I don't believe that any, any effort was made to delete files, to sort of hide any exactly. sensitive information that might implicate people. And so basically over the past week and a half, the Taliban has really been able to just go into the palace and, and get whatever data they need from every ministry and have full access to that because, and so who knows how that is going yeah. to be used at this point. Yeah, it's tremendous. It's as if they, you know, stocked the fridge and made sure that there are cold beers there. And, uh, you know, in terms of everything, the military as well as the palace and everything else. Now, you have decided to go back from Uzbekistan back into Afghanistan. People would call you masochistic uh, in many ways. Um, uh, you know, since this this explosion that we had today, a lot of people are saying that this is a new and probably final chapter uh, in the U.S.'s evacuation, obviously, but it really draws a line in the sand with regards to the escalation because of these uh, explosions and, and unfortunately casualties. Does this change your calculus about going back? Uh, are you fearful for your life? Um, you know, what would you anticipate once you head back? So uh, again, it's a, it comes down to a few logistics, which are, we've been trying to work through. It's been incredibly difficult, obviously, the situation. Uh, everyone's trying to get out. You know, we're trying to get in. But I, um, I hope to get back as soon as I can. It, it may take longer than I would like, but we'll see. I do really believe it's important to, to tell the story. I think that really this new chapter is only just beginning. And Lisa, I think whilst everything has been really focused on the airport and the chaos at the airport, there are so many things going on behind the scenes in a much bigger picture of what's happening in Afghanistan that we aren't really focusing on because people right now are just so consumed with the airport situation. And there's just so many, so many other things at play that I really feel uh, make a big difference to the United States and to the world that I would like to do justice to as a journalist if I can. Um, so that is really my objective is looking at that big picture uh, as opposed to the minutia. Um, I, you know, I, I've worked in Afghanistan. I'm, I mean, last time I was here in 2017, there were just multiple suicide bombings, including one right near my compound right. that killed 180 people. So in some ways, I think even Afghanistan isn't even as high threat perhaps now than it was in the past because right. a lot of those bombings were being orchestrated by ISIS, but exactly. also the Taliban, which I think the Taliban has, has has stopped a lot of their own sort of suicide attacks at this point because they are trying to herald themselves as the winners and, and the sort of the peace peace providers, if you will. Um, so in those sort of attacks, I mean, obviously you always have to be very mindful of them, but in some ways the country seems a little even less volatile in that sense than mm -hmm. it did uh, several years ago when you were just, it, it was a constant, day 
every day there was a suicide bombing. Every day right. there was and, a, and a arbitrary too. bomb. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. So in in some ways, I think mm -hmm. the, the actual level of violence has probably gone down a little bit. And you always have to weigh up the risk. You should always have a healthy dose of fear. I don't think anyone should be doing this work if they are completely fearless, because that's not not really smart uh, headspace to be in. I think you have to have your bearings about you. But I just I really believe in the story. I really believe in and not just allowing, I guess, sort of a, a blackout uh, on the situation. I think that the Afghans deserve better than that. And they deserve their story to be told as accurately as possible. And the only way to do that is to, to kind of really be there, I think. Wonderful. I mean, and we will keep telling their story. And uh, I encourage you all to go to uh, hollymckay.com to read uh, her work. Be safe, Holly. We are uh, with you. We are extending our prayers to you and the people of Afghanistan uh, to safely you know, navigate these new waters. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back uh, on, or at least we'll get you on the phone next week to hear about your trip back to Afghanistan. Again, be safe, safe travels to you and your team. And uh, we, we really appreciate all the work that you're doing. And um, we hope to echo the voices and the sentiments of the people of Afghanistan uh, in this very, very difficult hour. To all of you at home, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will continue our coverage of Afghanistan on foreigndesknews.com. To subscribe to our daily email, go to our website and you can sign up there. And to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa and you can sign up there. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week.